Well, it's our privilege now, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I want to read 11 through 22 as Max (laughs) understands we won't make it to the end of 22 today because I didn't bring dinner for you, but um, hopefully it'll be a blessing just the same. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. She'd like to read and then we'll introduce this. The Word of God says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 22. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You notice enmity, there is peace that's mentioned numerous times in verses 14 through 17. So we would say that this is about reconciliation. This is about Jews and Gentiles in particular being reconciled through the cross. So if you were to study human history, you would, you would come to learn and, and see that conflict has been the dominant theme of life Humans have been opposed to one another since early on. In fact, since the fall, the first recorded sin in Genesis 4 was Cain rising up to kill Abel very soon after the fall in Genesis 3. And since the fall of man, individual conflicts, family against family, clan against clan, region against region, nation against nation, and so it goes. War is the constant drumbeat of our history. The 20th century, the one that just passed, is the bloodiest in recorded history. From the Bolshevik Revolution to World War I, World War II, Korea, the Chinese Revolution, Vietnam, Pakistan running out the Bengalis, Russia's version of Afghanistan, which we took over in the 21st century, right? Bosnia, Africa, I mean, and then there's littler conflicts that I don't even know about. It's estimated over 150 million people were slaughtered in those kind of conflicts, right? Over 150 million people. There are personal conflicts with our neighbors, just with other people. Just listen to Judge Judy, (laughs) right? (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, go. We find out that there's malice, there's hatred, 
And that dominates the human heart. We hate anyone from a different state, a different city, a different neighborhood. We hate anybody from a different team, especially if you're an Oakland Raider fan. Right? <laughs> we hate anybody with different color skin from a different ethnicity. And there's religious hatred. Islam, for instance. The Quran says in Surah 533, quote, They shall be slain, speaking of the infidels, or crucified, or have their hands and feet cut off. That's in their text, right? The, the peaceful religion. Surah 9.5, quote, Slay the infidels whenever you find them. Lie in wait for them and establish every stratagem or um, every, every effort for war. Surah 47, 4-9 promises paradise to whoever cuts off the head of an infidel. Right? You have Christian persecution. In Egypt, just last week, they passed a bill that legalized a church in a, in a major city in Egypt. And the uproar from the, the Muslims around, they, they broke windows of Christian homes and Christian businesses. They tried to burn down the church um, all from a peaceful perspective, of course. Right? You have the Catholic Inquisition. You have Bloody Mary trying to kill the Puritans. And the list goes on and on and on. We hate anybody of a different color skin. Our world today is trying to pit black against white, not so black against not so white, right? Everything in between. We have Ukraine and Russia. I mean, that's the same thing. It's just same, same train, different time. It's just the drumbeat of our history. But can we say also that there's no virtuous group? There's no virtuous tribe. There's no righteous clan. There's no righteous nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation, by the way. Yeah. As for the individual, so for the whole. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, not even one. If there's no individuals righteous, there's no kingdoms righteous. Okay? Hatred, oppression, domination, murder is the human way. As a result of the fall and sin's entrance into our lives and the corruption of the human heart, as Titus 3.3 would say, for once we were foolish ourselves, and it goes on to say in Titus 3.3, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's our nature. That's sin's legacy. Jesus says if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder, so don't get too righteous because you haven't took anybody's life yet. The taproot of sin is pride. Pride is self-promotion over anybody else. It's self-interest to the oppression of others. Pride could be defined also as self-love, self-adoration, self-promotion, self-exaltation. We've said it here before. We'll keep saying it. It's not only true of me, but it's also true of you when we say this, that I love me more than anybody I've ever met. And that's my problem. That's my problem. And I get upset when you don't love me the same degree that I love me. You see, that's where conflict comes from. And that's pride, you see. That's the legacy of sin. That's the legacy of sin. This is the natural bent of the fallen human heart. Now, you couple that with the sway of the devil. 1 John 5 says the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Now, think about that. If the characteristic of the one who's dominating is evil, what will be his influence? Evil, evil which is our natural bent. So you got two things going in the same direction. It's not, it doesn't take a whole lot to convince me to do evil because that's my natural bent. And the devil's influence over the world is to do evil. 
Is it any wonder we have social distinctions and, and class warfare and racial barriers and narrow nationalisms? Is there any wonder? I mean, the wonder ought to be that we're still here. Right? It's God's great restraining grace that we're still here, frankly. Throughout history, now to bring this more narrow, there has been no more exclusive or unrelenting hostility than the alienation between the Jew and the Gentiles. Right? In the first century in particular, many Jews believed that Gentiles were created, quote, to fuel the fires of hell. Wow. One of their mottos was, the best of the serpent's crush. That's like wine, grapes. The best of the Gentiles kill. Right? So the grapes that are being crushed in that motto is Gentiles. Right? It was unlawful also to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth. Why? Well, that would bring in another heathen into the world. Right? Gentiles were considered as dogs. You remember the Syrophoenician woman that said even the dogs eat from the crumbs of the table, oh, yeah. right? Um, Jews were considered by Gentiles as homicidal enemies of the human race, <laughs> right? They called them atheists because they only believed in one God, right? Um, and so it went. They hated each other with such intensity. There were two schools of thought even within the Pharisees. There was the Shammai and the Hillel. The Shammai hated anything Roman, including and especially taxation. Now, you've read through the Gospels, and you know what the Jews thought of the tax collectors. That comes from the Shammai point of view. They believed that the tax collectors were worse than Gentiles because they were treasonist. Right? They, were, they were collecting for the, the enemy, and also they believed them to be unclean because they touched Gentile hands, Gentile money. Therefore, they were excluded from temple worship and were not allowed in the synagogue. That's why when Jesus in Matthew 9, when he was asked, remember he went into Matthew's home after Matthew was called to him? Who else is with Matthew in his home? The tax collectors. They had their own group because no one else would let them into their group. You see? But Jesus, isn't it awesome? Jesus was asked, why does your master go in to dine with tax collectors and sinners? Right? So there's all kinds of hatred between the Gentiles and the Jews. They wanted to destroy one another. The Romans hated Judea. They hated the Jews. And the Jews hated the Romans and the Gentiles. In fact, if you remember, to the Jew, to a righteous Jew to get from Judea north to Galilee, remember what was in between? Was Samaria. Samaria, right? Yes. And Samaria was mixed with Gentiles and a bunch of half-breeds, according to the Jews, right? <laughs> they would not walk across Samaria. They would go across the Jordan River and go up the east side through, through actually Gentile land, right? To go into Galilee because they thought they would be unclean and would not be fit for worship, right? Because of the dirt they would get on their feet. Um, that's how hostile they were. Um, now, before we leave that thought, the Torah, the first five books of your Old Testament, does teach separation, but not hatred, not malice, right? Not oppression, not opposition. Separation so that you don't live like the heathen and the pagans. You are to allow them to come your way. You're just not to go their way, 
you see. So the Torah did put up some boundaries, which we will look at later, but not the malice and the hatred. The Jews took it to the extreme and thought that the separation meant we must hate them. See, And so there was this conflict, this hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, when you come to Ephesians, in the church, in the body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles are together. It's like, wow. Think of that. Think of that right now, even. The Jews and Gentiles are together in the body of Christ. Fellow citizens they are of God's kingdom and fellow members of God's family. They are reconciled and one with equal access to the one true God. And together, Jews and Gentiles are the spiritual temple of God through the cross. Amazing. There's no room, we'll just say it before we move on. There's no room in the church of Christ for racial, ethnic, or any other barrier. Amen. Right? That's wicked. That is the world. In the church, there's no distinctions. Right? There's no distinctions. There's either Christian or non-Christian. Right? And that's what we want to be sure we're about. Right? We want to make sure if there's any jealousies, any prejudice in us, you let the Spirit of God rip it out of your soul. Right? And see the cross for what it is. At the, at the base of the cross, the ground is what? Level. Level. Jew and Gentile. Okay? All right. Um, so then, the real, this is the reality. If, if you remember what we read in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, this is the reality of our text here. Paul focuses on the Jew and Gentile unity through reconciliation through the cross of Christ. He reminds the Gentile audience because that seems to be his focus here, of where they once were spiritually. And he reminds them of where they are presently. And why is he doing that? Yeah, I, I was drawn, I have to ask the question, why is Paul addressing this? Perhaps, by this time, pride and separation was creeping into the church, and prejudice was coming into the church, and perhaps the Gentiles were separating from the Jewish believers. Perhaps they were having kind of an all-mill moment, right? Where they thought that the Jews, since God no longer is focused on the Jews, now they are to throw away. Now the Gentiles are the top dog, right? And isn't that what Paul's addressing in Romans 11? In fact, we should go there. Hold your finger here and go to Romans 11, please. This was prominent in these churches, especially when, when they realized that the Jewish nation rejected the Messiah and the Jewish nation crucified their Messiah. Therefore, God is no longer for the Jew. And now that I'm a Gentile in following the Jewish Messiah, He must favor me over the Jew. And I get a little arrogant about it. Right? I, th- I, think, I think I become, uh, God chose me to be saved because I'm special and He's rejected the Jews. You know? And the Jews thought the very same thing. Right? We're the chosen people, therefore the Gentiles would be rejected. The doctrine of election is beautiful, but it's of grace. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. Okay, all right. Now, where am I going? Romans 11. Um, look at Romans 11, verse 17, just for a point here. Verse 17 through 20. He's, talk, he's, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about how the Jews have been taken off of the root and, and the Jew, Gentiles have been Grafted in. That's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, 
And you, Gentiles, being wild olives, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. 18. Do not be, what does your text say? Arrogant or prideful, right? Toward the branches. So he's talking to Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. Don't exalt yourself over the Jews. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Okay, And then he goes to 19, And you will say then, Branches were broken off, Jews, so that I, Gentile, might be grafted in. Verse 20, quite right. That's a true statement. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be what? Conceited. Do not be conceited. Or, or, or probably even better yet, is stop being conceited. Verse 20 would say, But fear. If God didn't spare the naturals, He will not spare you either. Right? So, there in Romans, and I think that's probably bleeding into Ephesus, that you know, Paul's reminding the Gentiles in our passage in Ephesus 2, he's reminding them of where they came from, and he wants them to be sure that they don't get arrogant and conceited against the Jews. Now, the Jews, if you go to... Um, Timothy, go to 1 Timothy 2, 1. Go to 1 Timothy 1, please. This is interesting because Timothy was left back in Ephesus. And so Paul's writing to Timothy, who is at Ephesus? And notice what he's going to address in the first chapter here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we could pick it up, how about in verse 3 and 4, and then we can skip down to 6. But look at what verse 3 says. I, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Who would be interested in genealogies? The Jews, okay? Um, so this is a Jewish falseness here that's invading Ephesus, okay? Look at what it says in verse 4 again. Paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Okay? And then skipping down just for time, verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of what? The law. That's a Jewish perspective. Law of Moses. Even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And he'll go on to say what the law is good for. So I think, right, back to Ephesians, Ephesians 2. Why is Paul talking about this? Why is he focusing on the Jew-Gentile thing here? Is perhaps in this church where there's pride and, and ethnic arrogance creeping in, it sounds like perhaps. And so he's, gonna, he's going to remind them so that they come back to center and come under grace. Come under grace. Okay? You can tell a church that understands grace they're colorblind. They have no ethnic issues. They're not, they're not Russian, Moldovian, or Oki, right? They're Christians, right? They're Christians, first and foremost. We no longer see people according to the flesh, Paul says. Just like we no longer see Christ according to his humanity and his genealogy, we see Christ according to who he really is, the Son of God, okay? So if you have that kind of, if you have a, a, a prejudice bone in you, repent of it. Kill it. Let the Spirit of God kill it. It's not of Christ. 
Okay? And I want to really hammer that. Our door should be wide open to every single sinner that comes in here. We don't see color. We see a soul that needs Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? And so that's what we're emphasizing. I think that's what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's, re- he's, he's bringing them back to focus here. If you went back to Ephesians, please, in chapter 2, he's, he's talking now about this... This reconciliation, he's talking about unity. And he's been talking about unity, hasn't he, by implying even since the beginning of this epistle? For instance, go back to chapter 1, verse 3. Look at what he says here. Remember, we've touched on this many times before. I'm just going to touch it briefly. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed who? Us. No distinction here. But in this us is Jew, Gentile, and barbarian, and Okies, right? They're all right there. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse 4, just as He chose who? Us. You see? So us and our and we, He's peppered all the way through chapter 1 and halfway into chapter 2. And so we've said in previous studies that the emphasis here is on the equality, the, 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 uh, the, the equality of every believer. We are all, if we're in Christ, equally in Christ. We're all equally chosen, all equally predestined, all equally forgiven. There's no class distinction. We're all equal. That's what Paul's been emphasizing. And then when he gets to chapter 2, you notice he'll say these same kind of things. In verse 3, for instance, he says, Among them we too all formerly lived, including himself. He gets to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of this great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, he says there that he made us alive together. Again, you see no distinction equally. Every person that's come under the influence of grace has come under the influence of grace equally in this way. They have been elected, predestined, forgiven, redeemed, saved in Christ equally. Okay? Then he comes to verse 11 and he makes, he's going to focus on the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to focus on the Jews and the Gentiles. So this equally shared privilege that he's been talking about of every believer where, where there's no mention of nationality or ethnicity, no distinction whatsoever. In verse 11, he brings the spotlight down and he talks about the Gentiles. Notice how he says it here in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that's a non-Jewish person who's called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews. Okay? So here's your distinction, and, and as we work our way down, he's going to show how the, how the two are reconciled. Now, I'm going to break this down into three parts to, to help me work through this. 11 through 13, I'm going to say he's going to emphasize the need of reconciliation. Right? Here's the need of reconciliation. Verses 14 through 18, I'm going to just call that the means of reconciliation. 14 through 18. And then 19 through 22, I'm just going to say that's the fruit of reconciliation. So you have the need, you have the means, you have the fruit of reconciliation. Now, in verse 11, he starts with therefore, simply pointing us backwards. Based on the previous section, the previous 10 verses of God's wonderful grace rescuing us who were once enslaved to the devil and to sin... 
He's calling his readers to remember, based on verses 1 through 10, and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And verse 10 would say, We are equally his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. In light of that, here's the first command in the whole book of Ephesians so far. The first command is remember. Right? Interesting. The first command is verse 11 in the whole book of Ephesians, is remember. He's commanding them to remember. He wants them to constantly remember the past. Notice what it says there in verse 11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh. He wants them to remember that not only were they socially alienated from the Jews there, therefore they were at odds with God's people. Verse 12 would emphasize more they were alienated from God himself. And he wants them to remember, and this word for remember is more than just to recall. It is a purposeful, intentional remembering and meditating on something and then acting upon it. Does that make sense? More than just having, having a, a, a memory come blow into your head like a tumbleweed, right? This one is intentional. This remembrance is intentionally recalling something and meditating on it, almost like reliving it, and therefore acting according to what you're remembering. And, and he wants them to remember that they were distant from God's people. And it's interesting in verse 11, you see the word formally. Formerly is a, is a favorite word of Paul's. He uses that in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, in which you formerly walked. He uses it in verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived. He'll use it in verse 11 when he's our verse, formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh. In verse 13 he'll use it again. But now in Christ you who formerly. So think about this a minute. Apostle Paul is spending time and effort to encourage and exhort and instruct his readers to remember something. Why is that? Because we're so easily to forget. To forget who and where God has brought us from is to be quick on the pathway of self-righteous pride. Our memories are important to our present walk with Christ. Aren't they? To remember what it was like before you were saved, depending on how old you are when you were saved. I was 30 years old. I have a lot of memories that I wish I could lose. Mm -hmm. But in one sense, I praise God for them. Because it makes Christ sweeter. Paul calls them to continually remember the Lord's table. We're to do this in what? In remembrance. You, you, remembrance? You mean we might forget the sacrifice of Christ? Yeah. Apparently. What about in the Old Testament they had memorial stones? And every time they came around those stones were to remind them of the act that they put them there for. Mm-hmm. Right? What about the Passover? That event was to be remembered and you were to teach your young'uns about what happened. Memory is important for the Christian. Memory is important to God. Paul's calling his Gentiles here 
believers to remember the alienation that they once had with the Jewish people. In verse 11, the, the uncircumcision and the circumcision, that's that strange surgery that God commanded of the male Israelites at eight days old. And it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a, it was a physical rite sign that set them apart and said they're part of the Abrahamic promise. You see, And so the Jews took that act as the means by which they had favor with God. In fact, they believed it to be the means of salvation. Okay? And therefore, they used uncircumcision, like David said of Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Right? It was a term of derision. It was part of their pride, simply thinking that that physical surgery made them righteous before God. And therefore, those who were not, they were thrown away. Full of derision the Jews were and called them uncircumcised. In verse 11, this is, notice what it says here, that the, circum, the second half of verse 11, the Jews who are the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. What is, what is he saying there? It's merely, he's merely emphasizing, <laughs> I didn't do it, I give. Um, <laughs> he's merely emphasizing the physical act. Why does he say, of course it is a performed in the flesh by human hands. How else would it be done, right? What's this telling you? That there, according to Romans 2 and Colossians 2, there is a spiritual circumcision in the sense, what is circumcision in the spirit meaning? It means that you are had your, your sinful flesh dealt with through the cross of Christ. Okay, For instance, go to Romans 2. Look at verse 28 at least here. How about 26 through 28, 29? Look at this here. So if the uncircumcised man, Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, Moses, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So you see... Verse 27, And he who is physically uncircumcised, the Gentile, if he keeps the law of Moses, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Do you see what he's saying there? The mere act, the physical surgery, does nothing to your heart and does nothing with your standing before God. So the one who's uncircumcised, so the Gentile who's obeying the law of God in this text is the one who's righteous opposed to the Jew, even though he's circumcised, but he's rebellious. That's right. Okay? Look at, okay. Look at verse 28. For he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, so, do you see what's going on here, right? The spiritual circumcision is, is, is salvation. It's what God does to us when he saves us. He gives us a new heart, and it's used in this kind of language here. Okay, all right. Take that then back to Ephesians. What Paul's saying here in verse 11 is the Jews are all prideful because they've had circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands, not of the Spirit, 
Right? This is not... So they're just prideful because of their ethnicity. Yes. And they're looking down on the uncircumcised Philistine. And Paul says, remember that you were of that state. Verse 12, the alienation goes from between the Jews and Gentiles. Verse 12, now the alienation is between the Gentiles and God. Because look what he goes on to emphasize in verse 12. He says here in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's five elements to their separation, five elements to their alienation from God here that we're just going to pick apart here quickly. Look at the first one in verse 12. He wants them to remember that they were separate from Christ. The word there for separate is without. They're without Christ, apart from Christ. What is he emphasizing? The Gentiles were cut off from the Jewish Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One. Who's the, who's the Messiah? Think of this. The Messiah is the promised deliverer, the God-anointed King who comes to save. The Gentiles had no such person. They had no such promise of a Savior. They had no such promise of a King. They had no such promise of a Deliverer. But the Jews did. Here, the Gentiles are said in verse 12, the first, the first spiritual aspect of their alienation is that they are apart from Jesus Christ. They have no clue, no understanding, no part of a Messiah, of a, of a King. They have no Savior. That sounds horrible. Second aspect found in verse 12, notice, they're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The word excluded there, might, you might have a middle column that tells you more literally the word there in the Greek means alienated from. Not just socially are, are we once alienated, but religious, their citizenship. Notice it says here in verse 12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, their citizenship was of a different kingdom. They're not of Israel. They were aliens to Israel. Why is this so crucial? Because Israel is God's chosen people. And they weren't a part of it. See? Deuteronomy 7, 6. Moses writes this. For you are a holy people. Talking to the second generation of the Exodus. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples of the earth. Right? That's the Jewish nation. Um, go to Deuteronomy 4. I should have had you go there. Deuteronomy is such a wonderful book. I, I listened to it all morning again, and it just is such a... I just really like Deuteronomy. But I was reminded here in verse 32 of chapter 4, the privilege of Israel. A lot of people have lost track of Israel. Um... Israel is still the people, chosen ones of God, by the way. Verse 32 of chapter 4, notice this. Moses writes, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days in which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard of like it? What are you talking about? Verse 33, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you heard it and survived? This is their privilege. They've heard the voice of the living God. 
Verse 34, Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation from trials? By signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Has that ever happened before? No. How privileged is Israel? 35, To you has been shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other besides Him. What great privilege is that? Verse 36, Out of the heavens He let you hear His voice to discipline you. And on the earth He let you see His great fire and you heard His words from the midst of the fire. Because He loved your fathers, therefore He chose your, their descendants after them and He personally brought he personally brought you from Egypt by His great power. We'll finish in 38. Driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give, to give, you, their land, for an inheritance as it is today. Okay. From there, go to Romans 9. Gentiles are excluded from those promises. That's to Israel. Romans 9, he's going to focus here on some of the privileges of the Jews. I just want to remind you of these things. And when you come Wednesdays to eschatology, some of these things will be reiterated okay, and focused upon. Um, God is not through with Israel. Um, Romans 9, look at uh, verse 4, for instance. He's talking about who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Those are all... Stated privileges of the nation Israel, verse 5. Whose are the fathers and from whom Israel is the Messiah? What a, that was an honor and a privilege of the Jewish people that they were the ones from whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world came. According to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever and ever. Amen. Now go back to Ephesians 2, please. Paul says a part of the Gentile alienation is that they were apart from Jesus Christ, had no Savior, no no hope, no promise deliverer. They were excluded from, alienated from the nation of Israel. They were not citizens of that kingdom. Therefore, the promises made to that kingdom are not theirs. No other nation in the world can claim like Israel to be God's own. America is not God's nation, right? I hope you're not distraught over learning that today. <laughs> right? Um, there's no promise for America to last any more than there is for Mexico. Right? But there is for Israel. Right? There is for Israel. Um, look at third now, please. If you're in Ephesians 2, the third expression of this alienation is found in the middle of verse 12. Strangers to the covenants of promise. The word stranger is to be a foreigner. Okay, This is not your home. You're not a native. Uh, Paul here is piling up words to emphasize our previous condition of separation. You got separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants. He's just piling these words on to really drive home the point that before Christ saved them, this was their condition. Okay, This is their standing. The covenants of promise were foreign to us. Covenant is a contract 
whereby God commits and binds himself to carry it out. Okay? And notice here in our text, it's plural, the different covenants. The, the true and living God made contractual promises with Israel and to Israel. A land, a king, a kingdom, peace and prosperity, eternal life. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Those are all primarily Jewish. Okay? Even the new covenant is primarily Jewish. Okay? Now, Paul will mention in chapter 3 some glorious mysteries, okay? But up to this point, that in our study here, in the, in the Old Covenant, though there was mention and there's hints to, to Gentile inclusion, right? But nothing like Paul's going to teach us in chapter 3, right? This great mystery. But the covenants are made with Israel. Can I? I will. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask you. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah 31. Show you two or three verses there. And then I want to go to Ezekiel 36. Just so we get this understanding. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is prophesying to and ministering to the nation of Israel about the time and just bleeding into when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes out Israel because of their disobedience and rebellion. And that disobedience and rebellion of Israel okay, is based on the Mosaic Covenant. God said, if you do this, you will live and I will prosper you in the land. If you disobey my Mosaic Covenant, then I will bring trouble upon you and I will remove you. Okay, So Israel's expulsion from the Promised Land is based on their unfaithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? That gives great foundation to this text, which is the promise of a new covenant. Okay? Look at verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, future yet, declares Yahweh, when I, God, will make what? A new covenant with who? Israel. Read it all. Yeah, he's emphasizing the north and the southern kingdom. The primary emphasis, the primary recipients, the primary promise of the new covenant is to Israel. Okay? Isn't that what it said? Praise God. Praise God. With Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. What covenant is that? That's the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Not like the Mosaic Covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So God says they broke it even though I was faithful. The new covenant is going to be very different. And notice how different it's going to be. It's found in verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make, future yet in Jeremiah, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Not instead of outside, it's inside. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And 34 and 35 follow. My point is, we were strangers to the covenants of God. Okay? Even the new covenant in its original initiation, this is just the promise of it. Jesus initiates it in his death and resurrection. Okay? Now, 
Go to uh, Ezekiel 36, please. Now, Ezekiel is after, obviously, Jeremiah. He's going to minister to those primarily who have been taken out of Israel into Babylonian captivity. That's the recipients of Ezekiel's ministry. Okay, Ezekiel 36. Just to show again, here is... The promise made, chapter 36, in verse 22, for instance, and then we'll skip down, but look at 22, says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. So this is to Israel in verse 22. I want to skip down into verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations because they've been dispersed, the Jews have, which you have profaned, Jewish people have profaned in their midst. Then the nations, non-Israelites, will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, how? When I prove myself holy, distinct, unique, among you in their sight. How is he going to do that? What's he going to do? Look at 24 and 25. For I will take you, Israel, from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. He's going to regather them. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I think this is what Jesus was referencing in John 3 to Nicodemus. Okay? You must be born of the water and spirit. I think this is what he's referencing here. Go, keep going. Cleanse you. The sprinkling of the water will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. Obviously, that's not baptism. That's not a literal sprinkling of water because this water cleanses the soul. All right? 26. Moreover, I will give you what? A new heart. This is part of the new covenant. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from the flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 27, I will put my spirit within you. This is new. This is different than the old covenant right here. And, I, and what will be the result of this indwelling Holy Spirit in verse 27? Cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Why is that such a big deal? Because the people to whom he's writing are exiled because of disobedience. 28, you will live where? Verse 28. You will live in the land that I gave to your fathers. What land is that? <laughs> Palestine. Right? Genesis 12. Abrahamic covenant. Right? So the new covenant is... Yeah. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> but all that to say, going back to Ephesians, the, new, the covenants that we are strangers to include the new covenant. Until Paul will teach us more, okay? I, I don't want to... We're in the new covenant by special grace of grafting, okay? But the initial giving of the new covenant is to Israel, okay? Therefore, it's still today. They haven't forfeited that because it's unilateral. It's a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works. They can't forfeit something that they never can work for. It's a gift. The new covenant is a gift to Israel, right? We have been grafted in Okay, all right, just so we know this. Um, Ephesians 2, back there, please. Look at what it says here in verse 12. We, the alienation, the five aspects, the first one excluded from Christ, separate from Christ. We're excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Third, we are strangers, aliens to the plurality covenants of promise. Okay, that means they're not ours, is what the emphasis is. In this text, he's emphasizing Gentiles. You have no business of the covenants of Israel. 
Now, think of that. My goodness. Where does that lead in verse 12, the last two? Having no hope. Having no hope. They were foreigners. They were left to flounder to themselves and to suffer through the darkness of a godless existence. Wow. Having no hope. Possessing no hope. Because they have no promises from God, therefore they're without hope. Hopeless and despair is what characterizes all who are separated from Christ. Isn't that true? They might fake it. They might want to think you they want to try to fool you but we have a bible that dissects the human heart they can't fool me not because i'm so smart but because i have divine revelation right, that tells me the human hearts in this condition separate from christ is to be without hope yeah that should not make us arrogant that's why he wants us to remember do you remember being without christ and being without hope a lot of young people here, you probably don't remember so much. Maybe you do. Paul's calling us, you can. How about that? To remember what it was like to be unsaved. What it was be like to be separate from Christ and from God's people and from God's kingdom and from God's promises. God's promises fill my mind every day. They, I can't, they fill my mind. I can't help it. Don't they fill your minds? That's why you get up in the morning. Your hope is resting on the foundation of God's promises. Can you remember when you didn't have that? Hey, I can. I can't wait to get into the present, (laughs) to be honest with you. This is what Paul's saying to the Gentiles. Remember from where God has brought you. Remember what it was like. Separate from Christ, not part of God's people. In the covenants of promise, you were ignorant of. You had no hope for the future. No hope whatsoever. No promises. Chapter 4.17, look at this. Ephesians 4.17. He says, Affirm together with the Lord, in verse 17, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Notice, in the futility of their mind, verse 18, being darkened in their understanding excluded or alienated, that's a favorite word of Paul's in this section, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Darkness, hardness, separation. The world is lonely. Even the the world hangs out together, but because of their spiritual condition, they are lonely. I remember being lonely. But ever since God saved me, I've never been lonely. I've been alone a lot. But I've never been lonely since God saved me. But before that, loneliness was a part of my being. It was a part of yours too. And He wants us to remember that. Okay? He wants us to remember that. This is where He sat here. And He says in verse 12 again, having no hope, They're spiritually blind. They're in spiritual darkness. They live in uncertainty and fear. They live in uncertainty and fear. Why why does the world fear COVID so bad? I understand why the world fears COVID. I don't want to be insensitive here. I'm just dealing with me. 
right? But why would a Christian fear COVID? I'm going to glory. I mean, really. I had an abscess tooth in March of 2020. Man, it hurt. Remember that? Just like this. Oh, it was miserable. So I made phone calls to try to find a dentist that would pull a tooth out of my head. I could not find a dentist. So I called a pastor friend of mine and said, Hey, do you know any Christian dentists who aren't afraid of dying? <laughs> I need a tooth pulled out of my head, right? I found an army doctor, right? He wasn't a Christian, but he wasn't afraid of dying. <laughs> right? <laughs> but do you see what I'm trying to make a point of here is that the unregenerate Gentile here is being graphically depicted and described as those separate from Christ, no part with the nation of Israel, alien strangers to God's promises, therefore having possessing no hope, no grounds for a real hope. They have false hopes, oh yeah, all over. But real hope they have no possession of, no grounds of. Wow. And then look at the last in verse 12. And without God in the world. Without God in the world. That's got to be the worst. Paul uses a term here. Atheoi. Right? Which is the alpha primitive attached to theos. Right? Alpha A. Theos is for God. We get our English word atheist from this. Right? So what he's saying here in verse 12 is we're having no hope and atheists in the world. Living as an atheist. Now, Think of the Gentiles. Even though they had polytheistic religion, they had a plethora of gods. Remember Mars Hill in Acts 17? They had a god for everybody. In the case they missed one, they had one to the unknown god. Right? But Paul says, because those are not real gods, they're non-existent, they're phony, they are atheists without God. Right? Without God. Um, non-existent. Paul even said in Corinthians they're actually demons. Okay, This is true of every unbeliever. They are empty in hope, have no means of hope. Hope is fleeting because hope is only found in Christ. Didn't we sing that? Do you remember being without hope? Do you remember having no relationship with the living God? And let us have mercy on those who don't believe. Solomon found out about this, didn't he, when he wrote in Ecclesiastes that apart from God, all is vanity. All is useless. All is worthless. All is pointless. All has no purpose. Satisfaction is not lasting apart from God, apart from Christ. New Testament tells us that Christ is the living bread and the living water and the satisfier of the soul. So apart from that source... You have no grounds for hope or happiness. Don't, don't we need hope? People, all people need hope just to get up, right? The, the, the heathen world. I mean, how would you like to be the lowest caste in India? No thanks. Talk about hopeless, right? Heathens in our country have hope because it's been so easy for so long. 
Right? There's a, there's a, there's a false hope there. And they, and there's a hope of the, in the American way. I can pick myself up and rugged individualism and just cowboy up and get her done. Let's do it, you know. And, and so there's a hope there. And this country benefits us, has, maybe not so much now, but has in the past. Right? But apart from God, there's really no hope. We are the only people that have true grounds of hope. Therefore, we, we are the greatest need for this pagan world because we know the source of hope. So Christian, do you live hopeless? Do you live in despair? Life is tough, and don't get me wrong, but despair is to turn your back on God. Despair is to live as an atheist. Yeah? To despair is to live as an atheist. If it's true that all things are possible with God, that kind of puts a bounce in my step. <laughs> Can't help but believe that. Yeah? He wants us to remember what it was like before you had that. And you suffered in darkness and despair and hopelessness and one day just followed the next and there was no hope to get out of these things. That's why people get drunk and do drugs. It's an escape. We don't do that. Isn't that what First Peter 3 is telling us? If we live in light of what we know, no matter what persecution or oppression or trials, the unbeliever watching is going to be drawn to you to ask the question, right? What is the reason for the hope that is within you? Right? Yes. Right? So, the, so standing on the promises of God, standing on the hope, living in light of that hope in this life, honors Jesus Christ and is evangelistic. Because you, you can't fake what you're going through and still be hopeful. Because they suffer the same things. Right? They suffer the same things. But when they see the light radiating from you and, and the hope that you have in the midst of suffering, they know in their hearts something's real about this. You cannot fake that. He wants us to remember here that we were once apart from Christ, separated from Israel, strangers to the covenants. We had no hope whatsoever and we were atheists in the world. We had no God whatsoever. Finally, in verse 13, notice where he goes. He says, but now... He goes from past to present, but now in Christ. See the glorious grace of God here. See the, the work of Christ here. See God's love. It's not only reserved for Israel, but it's for the Gentiles. Amazing. What you and I could not do, God did in Christ, in verse 13. But now, presently, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a reality, is it not? That's your present condition. That's your present situation right now. You're no longer separated. You're, not, you're now in union with Christ Jesus. You are, that spiritual union speaks of your position and also when it says there in verse 13, brought near speaks of a real intimacy, a real closeness, a real practice of relationship with the living God. Awesome. Brought near in verse 13. 
Look at it again. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. You know how we are. We're into grammar. We're into words. Because grammar is life. This is a passive verb. Brought near. Passive. Someone outside of you has acted upon you to accomplish something in spite of you. (laughs) That's grace. The passive voice is grace. You did not approach God. God went after you and brought you near. This is what he's saying. You who were far off, groping in darkness, had no desire for God, enmity with God, suffering in the hopeless despair, Christ in grace came and apprehended you and brought you to himself. Is that not glorious? Is that good to remember? People, we should be just overwhelmed again at the grace of God. That I was once in verse 11 and 12. I am now forever in verse 13. Because it's grace. Unmerited favor. Brought near. This is amazing here. Verse 13. Brought near by the blood of Christ. The word near. Okay. Speaks of proximity. Okay. Actual nearness. The same words used throughout the New Testament, but just one place will suffice. In Matthew 24, verse 32, Jesus gives a parable of the fig tree. And in that parable, he says this, When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. The next verse, he then applies what he taught about the fig tree to his second coming. And he says this, He is near at the door. Right? Everywhere that word's used in the New Testament speaks of proximity. The Lord is near. Christ has brought us into His presence, into His proximity. The the omnipresent God has a special, gracious way of making intimate connection and relationship with people. Even though He's omnipresent, there is special intimacy. This is saying by the blood of Christ, which of course is His cross, His atonement, His reconciliation, the shedding of His blood on the cross, that's telling you that sin is what caused the separation. He did something to deal with the power and the the penalty of sin. And He went and apprehended you and brought you into His proximity. Because you're so wonderful. He just couldn't live without you because He needs you. Is that true? No! He wanted to shower grace upon you for your good and His glory. So then... Amazing. He says here in verse 13 that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Jewish Messiah gave his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for the sins that caused the spiritual separation and alienation. His death not only dealt with the penalty, but the power of sin and its effects. So that the one believing in Christ is no longer under sin's tyranny or domination. We have been set free, no longer controlled by the devil and sin, and even our own flesh, we have the power by God's grace to battle that. Okay, No longer are we controlled by the devil and sin, therefore we are able to live for God, we're able to draw near to God. We're even commanded to draw near to God. And James, you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Okay? We are no longer 
as we finish this, listen now. We are no longer enemies of His. We're no longer hostile to Him or His Lordship. We're no longer children of wrath and the devil, but we are now children of God. We're no longer separate from Christ, but we're one with Christ. We're no longer excluded, but now fellow citizens with the people of God. We're no longer strangers to the covenants, but grafted in by grace and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ. So says Ephesians 3. No longer are we hopeless, but now possessing a living hope, says 1 Peter 1.3. Hope of eternal life, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of glory. No longer without God, but now a close, intimate, personal, experiential knowledge of the living God. I know Him. <laughs> Do you think me crazy or arrogant? You know Him too. And we're growing in the knowledge, are we not? That's God's doing. You who were once far away, He kidnapped you. Praise the Lord. Right? He kidnapped me from the devil and brought me to Himself. <laughs> so that I can know Him and enjoy Him. Right? Listen, listen to Psalm 63. Please. Just listen to this, and you can look there if you like, but just listen to this. First five verses, one of my favorite, favorite songs. Because of what it depicts and what it describes. And it's Old Testament, but it's so glorious, so New Testament in its way. First five verses, listen. Oh God, says David, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. That's intensity. Right? In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. That's His mercy is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live and I will lift up my hands in your name. Verse 5, my soul, listen, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Are you satisfied in God? If not, you have not tasted Him. He cannot but satisfy your soul. And my, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. No longer spiritually dead, now spiritually alive, no longer in spiritual darkness and emptiness, but now in light and contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Oh, the grace of God. If you are in Christ, finally remember your past and remember your present privilege. Rejoice in Him. Exalt Him. Love Him. Serve Him with all your heart. Realize that there are no more divisions amongst people. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. That's the only distinctions to be made. And we are to love all people. To show grace to all people. No one's to be excluded. Let us go rescue the perishing. Galatians 3 says there's no distinction in Christ. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no Scythian. Right? There's no barbarian. There's no slave. There's... We're all one in Christ. Finally this. If you are yet in your sin, if you do not know Christ, 
in a saving way. And you realize in the depths of your heart that you are one of those hopeless ones. That you have no purpose really. Life is just mundane and purposeless. I would ask this. Are you tired of that? Why will you exist like that when Christ promises salvation to all who will come? So I extend the invitation from my Savior. Come. All you are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. How clear it is, how it gets down deep into the recesses of our soul and our minds. And it gives us hope. We remind ourselves again from where you've brought us. And we recognize as we look at the world, there go I but for the grace of God. Use us, Lord Jesus. Give us a greater passion, a greater understanding of your grace that we would extend this grace to every person that we come in contact with. Make us faithful proclaimers, evangelists. Help us, Father, to rescue the perishing. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.